Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership Grammy-winning producer and recording engineer David Rifkin, better known as David Z. The older brother of Prince and the Revolution drummer Bobby Z, David is an important contributor to the Minneapolis sound. Based around innovative drum machine rhythms and synthesizer leads and accents, as he worked with Prince and protege acts like The Family, Sheila E., Maserati, St. Paul, Jill Jones, T.C. Ellis, Maite, and others. He also produced the number one smash, she Drives Me Crazy by The Fine Young Cannibals, and worked with alternative pop rock artists like Aha, The Go-Go's, The Bodines, Terry Nunn, and Bananarama. Later, he became steeped in the blues, collaborating with Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Johnny Lang, the Eric Gales Band, Buddy Guy, Etta James, John Mayall, Government Mule, and many others. That's an impressive range and spans so many recordings that I have owned and performers I have seen on stage. David, it's great to have you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Where are you coming to us from today? Where am I? I'm in North Hollywood, California. Okay. Well, I'm from Los Angeles originally, now in North Carolina, but uh, I miss it a bit out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I, I lived in the South for a long time. I lived in Nashville for 14 or 15 years, I think. And uh, I moved out here. My, my kids all moved out here, so I had to be with them. Mm. So how long about have you been out there now? Well, I've been here quite a while, about 11 years. Oh, all right. Yeah, we, I'm, I older, left... I'm older than I look. <laughs> well, you know, I'm such a fan of your, your work. Uh, you know, I was a disc jockey throughout the 1980s. So I, you know, in clubs. So I spun so many of your uh, 
songs and the 12 inch versions in particular so kept you know the dance floors packed throughout the 80s yep you know um i like to keep people moving yeah well it definitely did you had the right the right blend um your your background is so interesting in terms of you know you and your brothers you know what was it like uh, growing up in that household and how did all of you come to be artistic I don't know how we got it. Um, my mom's artistic. She did uh, she did a lot of decorations, and uh, she had a business for a long time of uh, party decorations. And I guess that's where we got it. I don't think my dad had a he didn't have a speck of uh, art in him. Um, so either that or it just came naturally. But I was the first one to. Uh, be a rebel and join a rock and roll band and um my my brothers basically followed my brother steve who is now a film editor uh he was in a band with my brother bobby who's the, a drummer so um you know they they were we had a basement that was filled with bands filled with loud amplifiers And growing up in Minneapolis, right? Yes. Yeah. South Minneapolis, yes. So were you any, I don't know the area uh, really at all. Um, how, what was your proximity like to the Peterson family, for example? Uh, well, interesting enough, uh, we're related. Um, my, uh, my cousin Stuart, my first cousin, is married to Patty Peterson. So we're all one big conglomerate, uh, and uh, they, they, you know, I was always uh, on par with Ricky Peterson. We uh, kind of grew up through the business together, and um, he's he's playing with Fleetwood Mac right now. He's he's grown up. <laughs> he's a lot younger than me, but yeah. We always, I mean, the Petersons were a very big part of, uh, or they still are, a very big part of music in Minneapolis. Those must have made for some interesting family gatherings, I would think, you know, people grabbing whatever they could to make some music. Yeah, well, there's a lot of us. I don't know, we, can, we don't usually get together everyone at once, but uh, actually last night I just had dinner with two of the Petersons, so. Yeah, it's a big happy family. Wow. Um, so you said that you were in a band first, I think. What were you playing and what kind of music? Uh, I started with folk music, because that's how old I am. And um, I had a duo and then I, uh, then I got introduced to the electric guitar, which I fell in love with. And um, before you know it, I had a band. I started in a group called the Chancellors. Uh, and it progressed from there. I had several bands. And, you know, I, back when I was starting bands, there there weren't that many musicians in, that existed. Nobody thought it was a cool thing to do. It was just, you had to just love music to be involved. And um, that's what I always tell people. If you don't love music, it's not worth it because, you know, it's a vicious business. But, uh, yeah, I love music and we I played in many bands growing up. We, uh, we toured all over, uh, toured all over the Midwest, and then we toured all over uh, the United States. So... Um, we supported ourselves pretty well that way. And uh, I, I just settled into a way of life like that. So what year about was that? That's like the mid seventies? That was 1967. Oh, wow, that far back. Yeah. yeah. 1967, 1968. Um, and then, uh, 1968 and 9, I moved to Los Angeles because um, I was frustrated. I was a promotion man for um, A&M and Electra Records. 
in Minneapolis and they would give me lists of records to try and push to the disc jockeys at the radio stations and a lot of them I wound up listening to and going I I don't like this I can I can do better so uh, I went out I went to LA came to LA and um, I fell in with a bunch of writers and um, I got a I got signed by A&M Records as a writer uh, and I I did that for like four years wrote a bunch of songs none of, none of them ever really did much because I don't know people were looking for all different kinds there's a bit there was a big difference between writers and people that were self-contained players and um, I could just write songs for people that didn't write songs it was kind of a limited market but uh, then doing that I uh, got frustrated with that and I moved back to Minneapolis and fell into a recording studio I had nothing I had no knowledge of how to work a recording studio I was just a songwriter and um, make a long story short I hung around there and uh, I I learned how to be an engineer just by because no one else was doing it and what they were doing was didn't sound very good and I was really interested in making the sounds th three-dimensional so uh, I put myself on my own quest to make better recordings and that's how I that's how I looped into the engineer business so were you um, getting time at a studio owned by someone else or did you get a hold of your own equipment or well what? I I went to work at a studio that was in the ghetto in Minneapolis which is North Minneapolis and uh, you know people would come up there they had a racket going where they'd have the bank on the corner finance recordings wasn't the uh, kosher but I got to do a lot of recordings and uh, I got to learn made mistakes on other people and in the meantime I met a lot of great musicians and we always wondered uh, why Minneapolis didn't have a music scene there was nothing happening I mean maybe one group or another in a great great a, a lot of groups I mean there's a great amount of musicians there that were frustrated going why can't we do something on the radio why can't we and they it was frustrating everyone was you know trying to get on the radio they were trying to make songs that would work and um, we all were trying to do the same thing so uh, that's where the state of things were at back then so at some point you crossed paths with Prince I don't know if um, you know there's any one of uh, any kind of fame or re recognition that you, you know, worked with before Prince, um, what kind of happened around that time? Uh, I had limited amount of success before Prince. Uh, I used to do these, uh, every Friday we'd do a <clears throat> broadcast from the studio over the radio. It was a big radio station at the time, KQRS, and we did live concerts. And I got to have touring musicians come in you know much bigger than the groups that were there at Minneapolis I mean I had you know hit hit groups from everywhere from the south from you know songwriters in Nashville and all kinds of uh, groups that came through town the radio station uh, it was part of a deal where they get promoted and they get to do a an hour live on Friday nights on the radio and it, it kind of whipped me into shape because I had to I was the engineer and I kind of organized it and um, that uh, it was really great training for me it during the course of that a friend of mine who is a uh, 
real estate business real estate agent he um he brought in this group called uh champagne and um it's, it was Prince and Andre Simone and Morris Day, the three of them. They were only probably 15 at the time. And uh, we, did a, we did a recording for them, not a radio concert, but a recording. It was okay, it came out okay, and it was, wasn't anything spectacular. And about a year later, uh, my friend Owen Hosney came in and he said, I'm, I'm managing this kid that you recorded before, and uh, his name is Prince, and I wanna, you know, you know, he was part of the crowd that wanted, we wanted to get things moving and get him signed out of Minneapolis, which was impossible. Uh, the record companies wouldn't even come up there. They thought we uh, had buffalo in our backyard. So they wouldn't give us a shot. Um, and then I did this demo with Prince alone where he played everything. Um, and he had everything on a little cassette machine. He'd hum the piano part, and the guitar part, the bass part, and then he'd just play them back one by one. And um, it was amazing to me because I've never seen anybody that could be that objective and play every instrument and make it sound like it's, it's a lot of people. Um, I did this demo and then uh, Owen took it to Warner Brothers. He took it to many labels, but Warner Brothers was interested too and um, that's they signed Prince to a, a deal and that's how his career began. Were any of those tracks uh, ones that ended up on that first record of his? Yeah, uh, just as long as we're together, soft and wet, baby. Uh, uh, he re-recorded re some of them, but um, a lot of the original things wound up on the record. What? Uh, how would you describe his demeanor and you know personality early on? Uh, he was very determined. Um, he, you know, he uh, he joked around plenty, but um, he was just focused. He just always saw the you know the laser focus that he has, and uh, you know he was he was actually embarrassed to sing in front of. Uh, when I was doing a vocal track, my wife walked into the studio and Prince goes, would you turn the lights off? I don't want her to see me singing. And I went, wow, that's, that's pretty shy. He was very shy, which later on, I guess, kind of lost that. But he was very shy to begin with and he, he wanted to prepare everything in the closet and wouldn't, wouldn't open the door till it was ready. So... Uh, that was the way he worked and you know he was very very good at every instrument and for being that young and not ever playing there was no place there was no place in Minneapolis for black groups to play there were really no clubs there was no avenue that anybody could go and express themselves uh, and very very little in the in the way of uh, you know avenue uh, venues to play, so I was amazed at how good he was without having to play anywhere. But you know that's just inherent of what he his talent is. Did did he only sing falsetto or did he no. do some because the no, record was all falsetto. Yeah, no, well, he did a lot of things falsetto, but he had a really deep voice also. Um, I think he thought the falsetto was his key to success, which it was. But, um, you know, later on, I guess he developed the confidence to sing lower. But, uh, yeah, come to think of it, it was a lot of falsetto.
well yeah i remember being surprised when i heard how well he could sing in other registers you know on the second third records whenever it was yeah 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 he had a four four octave voice range what was he like so confident in what he was doing or did he solicit much feedback well you know we i don't recall him being very stubborn about it but he he knew what he was doing and just because you know we we went yeah or no or you know i mean yeah of course we had to try things and um you know had to bounce off he was he was a total amateur he had, we had to uh or i had to correct him a lot but not that much he, he knew what he was doing and he made mistakes he admitted it you know he he went that was too much you know he knows his first record was just way oversung and he put way too many voices on it and uh you know he said it himself but you know it got him somewhere so when he got that deal or word came down that he got the deal were you just amazed because it was kind of a breakthrough for that area yeah family? well the year before he got signed i just so happened to do a record called funky town okay. which got signed and went worldwide it was so as a huge smash it was in every country in the world and we just did it from you know our our little studio in minneapolis that was basically the first big hit out of there at that time and um i know prince was jealous and he was going i need i want to do that you know i don't he was always driven by other people's success he was I'll never forget when Madonna got a deal for $90 million. This was much later. He was stomping around the studio going, uh, well, she got a deal for $60 million. And he was going, $60 million. I'm going to get a deal for $90 million. I mean, that's kind of what drives him is the competition. Um, but anyway, getting back to the story. Could you tell early on back then also, David, that he was very interested in the engineering and recording process as well as the musical part of it? That he was? Yeah. It didn't seem like it. I mean, he he didn't really seem like he cared about, uh, I mean, because it sounded good, so he didn't give a shit about how to get, how to do that. I think later on he learned that he didn't need that many people around him if he could do it himself which is his goal. He wanted to self-engineer and self-produce everything. And I was busy. I did other projects. How surprised were you when Funky Town hit so big? I mean, how did that change your life? Yeah. Yeah, that was a huge record and I no one expected it. It was really out of the clear blue sky. But I guess that's how things happen. Yeah. But how did that change your life personally in a musical standpoint? Well, it changed my career because people would start to come to me then. And, um, you know, I just re realized the power of the media, how strong it was to have a song played over and over and over and over on radio stations. Just completely blew open everything. And there were a lot of people that were jumping on board to try and get that success. And it, it opened up Minneapolis completely. And, you know, all these people that were behind the scenes, black and white, got a chance to deliver. They, they, got a, they saw an avenue and they went, we can do that. And it opened a floodgates where, uh, Minneapolis just broke open. Some talented people flooded out of there. Jimmy and Terry and Jesse Johnson and all these, you know, even the white guys, uh, you know, the replacements. Replacements, yeah. Yeah, replacements and Husker Du. And that was another side of Minneapolis. That was the other, the other genre that came out of that place. 
we had the dance, black cult music. I, I don't want to say it's all black, but it wasn't. Um, and then, then there's the white rebe rebels, the, uh, the punk people. Yeah. It all came to fruition at the same time. Yeah, it must have been quite a buzz in the air at that point. Yeah. And uh, I want to say that uh, the success of those songs like Funky Town and then I mean, Prince wasn't a success right at first. His um, his first album really didn't do anything. And they, you know, luckily record labels back then would give an artist three albums to develop. They invested in their artist. It wasn't like today where if they don't have a hit on the first single, they drop you. Yeah, that's it wasn't like that. Yeah, his first album wasn't that successful and, and actually uh, the black audience didn't like it because it wasn't like Park Parliament or Funkadelic or it, it wasn't the Ohio Players. He was doing something new and different. And it took a long time for even the black people to uh, acknowledge that. Yeah, I bought that first album that year when I heard Soft and Wet. Um, so I was there from the beginning. And I've actually, I was actually at his first show he ever did in Los Angeles at the Roxy in 79. So I've been from early on. And uh, I, yeah, I would say it was more like a, like a Patrice Russian or Jackson's kind of vibe to it at that time. Yeah, he was a good friend of Patrice, Patrice, Patrice Russian. She was on the first record. But that kind of music was sort of on the edge. Um, Patrice only had one one single that I know of. But, you know, Prince was paving a new direction. And not everybody's going to jump on that right away. Familiarity is the key. And then, you know, his second and third album was what did it for him because he, he got funkier and funkier. And he developed his his sound. What what was your uh, interaction relationship with him after the first record? It was a good relationship. He he went to California and he did he did two albums by himself. And um, you know he, the third album was I Want to Be Your Lover, and I think that was or maybe it was the second album, but it, it proved to him that he could do it. And then we drifted apart and did our own thing. I was busy, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, around about the time of uh, Delirious, he called me up and I kind of came back into the, into the fold and uh, did a little work on Delirious. And then the next album, he wanted me to record live he was playing live at a club and uh it was a show for to benefit a, a lois holton it was a dance uh a dance instructor that that helped him and, and the band staging their do their choreography so he did a benefit for them and that i recorded that we called in the record plant truck and that turned into a concert that made up the album Purple Rain, which nobody expected that. I mean, that was that was just a, uh, you know, that was the first time I was in the truck recording them. It was a new band, basically, with Wendy. Wendy and Lisa and... Uh, Mark Brown on bass. My brother was still playing drums, and Dr. Fink. Yeah, how how did your brother become involved, and did your brother's involvement help get you back into the fold? Or my brother actually worked for Owen Husney at, at his ad company and did all the. He was a runner. He went and did all the things and got printing and delivered things, and when Owen took over Prince's management. Bobby became the guy that drove him around and they hung around together and Prince didn't drive so Bobby 
was the chauffeur. And then he was also wound up in jam sessions because he was already a drummer. And um, Prince just wanted to jam most of the time. So he wound up in the jam sessions and that resulted in him being the, the drummer. So, and did that kind of help bring you back into mind and, and get you back involved too, or had no relationship? I don't know if that had an effect at all, but it, you know, I was involved. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that show you mentioned, David, if I'm not mistaken, was maybe Wendy's first show with Prince. Well, as the revolution. Yeah. I mean, he had done, he had done a couple other gigs in North Minneapolis at a limited club. Uh, and they, that was when they had Gail as the piano player and uh, Andre is the bass player and uh, Wendy wasn't there. And uh, it was just like a showcase. Nobody recorded it or anything like that. Ron Mark was Ron Mark was on the show, and I think I remember him saying that Bobby was the one that picked him up at some point. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, they were friends. I mean, they Prince didn't have a lot of friends, and uh, they uh, they hung. And the thing I have to keep, keep <coughs> excuse me, thing I have to keep thinking back about is um, how. Prince made a very con conscious effort to uh, have a diversified band, white, black, women, men, all different religions. I mean, he uh, he made a conscious effort to uh, to be like that, and no one has really done that at the time since Sly and the Family Stone, and since Jimi Hendrix, and uh, you know. The black and white combination of people, it was either like a you know the a black group or a white group. You had to make a choice. But he made it. He made sure it was both. And his first concerts were amazing because they were half black and half white. Huge, and that wasn't that hadn't been done much. It hadn't been done much before. It was great to see. The integration. Mm -hmm. As you were talking about the Purple Rain thing, which was no one saw that coming at that level. I was at the Rolling Stones show where he got booted off the stage. And, yeah. you know, so I, I saw him from, you know, the first show on the West Coast and just rise up through all that adversity and get so big. And for me as a fan, it was such a thrill because I had never followed somebody that had done anything like that. And, and had just, the guts to get bottles thrown at him and still get back on the stage. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, it was a social economic. P. I, you know, I think everything and the music was great. It was great, and it bridged all the uh, gaps. But I think he coordinated his social economic rise with the musical rise. And you know, society kind of went along with him, and he uh, he broke a lot of rules. When you came back into the full working with him, what about him had um, advanced or changed from your earlier working with him? Because he his, had his presence, his showmanship was completely different. He was confident. He was confident in what he was doing. His attitude was, uh, you know, I want to say uppity, <laughs> but uh, that's how he changed. He 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 grew confident in himself. It's hard enough to be a musician where you don't, you know, you don't have confidence in yourself. But he totally got confidence in himself. Did anything he do surprise you musically or did you feel from like the get go when you first saw him that he had that in him? I think he, he developed a system of licks and sounds that no one else had before. 
he did these horn licks on an Oberheim synthesizer and invented a way to do it that uh, was very profound. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis copied every single one of them. And I, you know, I mean, they're great writers, but the Janet Jackson records were actual Prince copies. They could have taken this lick and that lick and put it exactly where they thought. But, uh, you know, he didn't let that bother him. Um, yeah, he developed a total style. Total style and a total way of playing licks that no one had done before. <clears throat> and these little endings that he had on his licks were very unique. Uh, I mean, you could tell a Prince lick from a mile away. It was just the way he did it. Da -da -da -da. Little horn licks. But they didn't turn out to be horn licks, they were synthesizer licks. When, you know, when I heard what he was doing on songs like Delirious, right around that time with the synth parts replacing horns and, and Let's Pretend We're Married and, uh, you know, some of the ways they were used on those songs, I just thought were revolutionary. And at first I was, you know, worried that horns were being pushed aside in the early 80s, but he found a way to keep that same flavor in there, but make it fresh. Yeah. Yeah, he found a way to make it work in a funky way, which was, uh, it appealed to everybody. So what else were you doing uh, in, in that camp? You know, once you came back in, you know, what were, what was your role? Uh, well, for Prince or for other people? For Prince, and then you branched out into some of the other associated acts. Yeah. Well, I mean, after Purple Rain, that was a huge blowout. Uh, we started doing a lot of projects for his label, Paisley Park. Um, he signed Maserati, which were a friend of his, and I was put in charge of that. Um, he signed Jill Jones, which was a friend of his, and I was put in charge of that. He signed The Family with Paul Peterson and Susanna, and I was put in charge of that. Um, yeah, he, he had me running. I mean, I was, he called me to LA one day and he said, come on out for a couple of days. I want to talk to you. I'm in the studio. And I went, okay. So I threw a couple of shirts in the bag and I went out there and the minute I got there, he goes, we're going to do this group called Maserati. I'll be in this room. You can be in that room. You can be here for about three months. I went, three months? I only brought a shirt. <laughs> I had to run out and buy all clothes, new clothes. But that's the way he, he ambushed you. He did the same thing in New York with Jill Jones's album. But yeah, I was running for him in the meantime. Uh, you know, I did, did other records like Fine Young Cannibals and uh, Jesse Johnson. Um, Nina Cherry. Hmm. Uh, I can't even think of them all, but I had a lot of things going on. Yeah, I even saw General Keane on there. I just had uh, Kevin Goins was just on the show the other day um, from that band, and Trey Stone has been on also. But um, yeah, you know. So when he said he wanted you to do those acts, though, what what, what were you doing for them exactly? Uh, well. It was different, it's different with every act. With some of the acts like Jill Jones, I had to pull the band together in New York. Uh, I had to record the tracks. A lot of times he'd do the drum and bass and send me the drum and bass and we had to add to it. Uh, in the case of the family, he did all the tracking and I had to do all the vocals and mixing. So. Uh, I did some tracking too, but it was fun when he was doing it because I got to work with him. And uh, I used a lot of great players. I pulled in Steve Stevens from uh, Billy Idol's group to play guitar, one of my favorite guys. He was terrific. And um, 
there was a lot of I had a lot of freeway I had a lot of room to do it pulled in Steve Gadd I did uh, hired players and helped arrange and uh, did all the vocals that was the hardest part because Prince would sing the vocal track and he'd want the vocalists, whoever it may be, to sing exactly what he was singing. And that's not easy, because he's, he's, he's a seasoned singer. He's got a way of doing things that uh, not everybody can do. And, uh, you know, I, have, I, had to, I had to punch in every other word with a lot of people. That was back when we had tape machines, you could punch them in. But, um, yeah. So was this at Sunset Sound, or where was it mostly? Uh, it was wherever I was. In New York, we used Electric Lady Studio. Uh, Sunset Sound we used in L.A. Um, in Minneapolis, we used Prince's Warehouse. Um, you know, there's, it was wherever it was. What do you think you learned from Prince in terms of uh, music making or working in a studio? I mean, I'm sure you, it went both ways, but what would you say you picked up from him? Uh, just a certain way of doing things. Um, and that uh, it's okay to, to not, to make mistakes because a lot of people are so uptight, they don't want any little mistake and they make make it over and over and over. But Prince just was so like, you know, if he made a mistake, he was like, I meant to do that. It was like Pee Wee Herman. And, uh, you know, we'd laugh about it. He didn't care. It was, I mean, he was so good that he, he'd play something and it would be it. That'd be it. There wouldn't be any redos or fixing or punching in or anything. So, yeah, to keep the flow going, that's what I learned. You don't, get, you don't block the groove. Never stop the groove. So, Was it challenging? Uh, did you feel like you had to keep up with him at times? Uh, you know, I don't think... I don't think we ever had any serious disagreement, ever. I, you know, it's funny, I did not work for him. I only worked alongside of him. So he never had the employer-employee relationship with me like everyone else in his camp. He could call him up at three in the morning and go, get out here, and we're, you know, right now. He didn't, he couldn't do that with me because I didn't work for him. So uh, I think that led to a much better relationship. I've enjoyed hearing those uh, some of the stories out of Sunset Sound about you know how he would be in different moods and that would reflect in sort of how he approached a, a session and things like that. Um, did you see a lot of that too? Not so much uh, the mood thing. I mean, he, he was very moody, but. I don't know if I'd say it affected one way or another. It might have, it might have affected what songs he wrote, but he was very, he was very observant of everything. And there was a, I remember uh, at Paisley Park, on the way to Paisley Park, there was a church and they always had something profound on the board out in front of the church. And uh, I drove by there one day and it said, uh, well done is better than well said, which was, I guess, an old quote. And we got to the studio and um, I came up with this drum beat on my machine. I used an SP-1200 and he, he was going out with Kim Basinger at the moment. And uh, I was doing something in Studio B and he walks in with Kim Basinger holding hands and he goes, what are you doing? And I'd been dealing with enough, so I knew how to approach him. And I said, ah, you're not gonna like it. It's it's just something I've been working on. He goes, let me hear it. 
So I played him the beat, had a drum bass and and uh, conga beat, and he went, "Give me a give me a piece of paper." And he sat down, and he wrote lyrics in ten minutes at the most. Just sitting on the couch, he, he goes, "Give me a mic." And he went out there and he sang this song, "Well Done," which is something that I was, you know, he had seen on the on the church board that day, and um, it was it was amazing to me how he could just flip something around and make a whole song out of a suggestion of a lyric. But it was a pretty funny day, and he told Kim Basinger. Uh, he goes, we're going to be busy. Go make us some popcorn, Kim. She goes, okay. <laughs> she went and made some popcorn and brought it back in. And uh, I thought that was just a, a funny exchange. So that, that was around the time of the Batman soundtrack, like late 80s? Yeah. 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 So I think she had a credit on the Scandalous Sex Suite uh, song. Yeah. Remember. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Beautiful girl. She would. They were very tight at the time, and you could see why she was a movie star. She just had perfect, perfect measurements. Really beautiful, nice person too. So you didn't see so much of that in Minneapolis, I'm guessing. Not before that, no. <laughs> no, she had a southern accent too. Which is... Was there? Um... A particular song or track that you worked on that you're especially uh, happy with or proud of during your Paisley Park or Prince period? Oh, there's a few of them. Absolutely. Uh, Erotic City was one of my favorites because he used the organ pedals as the bass, you know, the little, instead of a bass guitar. <clears throat> I thought that was cool as hell. We used he used to, we used to talk about using instruments in a very unconventional way. Uh, he used to joke about putting guitars underwater. What would that sound like? And, um, you know, he was very, he was very uh, brave that way. And a lot of songs, he didn't use any bass, like, uh, you know, When Doves Cry. There, there was several songs like that. But as far as tracks go, I mean, my favorite, my favorite recordings that I've done with him, um, I mean, I'm pretty, pretty sure Purple Rain's up there. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of sick of hearing it, but, uh, uh, you know, at the time, I didn't realize how big of a smash that was going to be. Um, and that was a real rewarding, rewarding experience to, to record that. And really, the only thing that was fixed on there, I mean, it was a live recording, everything. All his vocal, his guitar, everything, it was a live recording. And the only thing he did was um, replace the bass because that bass that Mark used was wireless. And the, at the time, wireless, wasn't up to par and the, the frequency wasn't really represented and it didn't full hold full frequency. So we replaced that and then added a string section um, with the orchestra. But otherwise the rest of that track is as is. Um, yeah, I've done quite a few that I think are my best work. I think Kiss is my best work. I did most of that, um, and you know that was an experiment in science. I gated the guitar to uh, the hi hat, which is a process you can synchronize, what they call a gate, and uh, the guitar did a rhythm that nobody could even play. It was so it was a funky part that very hard to play by yourself. It's it's electronically driven, so. Uh, that I'm really proud of too. Now he took that back from Maserati, uh, infamously. He right? gave us, yeah, he gave us a cassette. You can find it on uh, 
I'm sure, YouTube. He gave us a cassette with him just doing straight acoustic guitar strum, and he was singing one verse. That was it. And it sounded like a folk song, the way he gave it to us. It sounded like Stephen Stills or something. And we took it back, and we went, what the hell are we going to do with that? And uh, I started programming the LM1, the drum machine, and um, in order to fill out the rhythm, I did what he did, and then I went, no, nah, that's not funky. That's really, really straight ahead. So my co-engineer, uh, we, uh, we gated the hi-hat on the drum machine to the acoustic guitar, and it made this shimmering, completely funky rhythm that no one could do. And then I added a piano from a song that I was, I always liked, it was a Bo Diddley song called Say Man, and the piano was like, -da 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 -da. it was like a little trickle of a piano in there. We put that in there, and then uh, the guys from Maserati sang backup. The, the, the main guy from Maserati sang the lead, but it was an octave lower than what Prince sang. And then the, the guys in Maserati sang backup. I had them do a part from a Brenda Lee song called Sweet Nothings, which was big when I was a kid. And they sang, eh. that was uh, that was the background for her song. We just stole it. And, um, and it was only three notes, so who cared? But um, he took it. <clears throat> I went home that night. We were working on it all night. And I went back to the hotel and <clears throat> came back the next morning. And the tape was not in my room. And I went, Where, where's, where's the tape? And Coke, who was my engineer, he said, Prince came in and he took it. I <laughs> went into Prince's studio and I said, what's going on? You took my tape. He goes, it's too good for you guys. I took it back. And by then, he had already put his voice and he already put the, Papa's got a brand new bag guitar on it. This is exactly James Brown's beginning. And um, it was done. And then we mixed it. It was only nine tracks. I had kick drum on one track, all the other drums on the other track. There was only snare and hat. Um, oh, and then I had a trigger track with a hi-hat that nobody even heard. It wasn't in the mix. And that was it. I mean, very, very, you could do it. You could have done it out of your house. Yeah, it was, it was radically sparse. Yeah. Sound. Yeah, the record company gave me a hard time about that. They thought it was sounded like a demo. And uh, I thought it was cool. Prince thought it was cool. The record company went, no, you really fucked it up. It's bad. You really fucked it up. We're not going to release that. And I was really heartbroken. And uh, Prince said to them, you know, you're going to take that because I'm not giving you another single. And sure enough, they took it and they, you know, it was so different that it caught everyone's ear. I mean, that he he's done a lot of things that were so different from what was happening at the time that it was a shock value. Yeah, that's why I love, well, one of the main reasons I loved him, but, you know, and that every record, you never knew what to expect and it would just be a quantum leap sometimes and the changes and just keeping up with him, incredible. Yeah. Um, and that record too, that went on parade had so many new interesting sounds and girls and boys and yeah, I uh, love just girls. track after track was just radical. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's great stuff. Do you think there's any chance Maserati would have had any success had they put it out on their own? No, it didn't sound the same. It was, uh, you know, with 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 the singer singing an octave lower, it didn't have the full impact. I mean, Prince's voice is key there. And it's, you, did you work also on uh, some of the Times tracks? 
Because that title track also was just kind of continued that real sparse kind of feel, yeah. you know? Yeah, I didn't work on that. Well, that was a turbulent time in there. We changed the band and everything. And yeah. Um, but you continued working on, on different projects, even when that turbulence was kind of going on, when you changed bands and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I never, I was still at Paisley Park. How how was it for you when that finally actually opened and there was an actual Paisley Park? Yeah, I had an office upstairs for five years and uh, I had a lot of people coming in and out. A lot of groups coming in and out. I mean, they came from everywhere. Had uh, groups from Sweden, uh -huh, Norway. Um, a lot of English groups came through, Australian artists uh yeah it was a great place until you know people got sick of coming to 31 below zero and i got kind of sick of it too because it's cold well like prince would say it kept the bad people away it did we had plenty of our own bad people so we didn't need any more Uh, David, of the other projects you worked on that you had mentioned many of them, is there one or two of those that you felt the, the, the best about, the most fulfilled about, that you thought were most successful, whether it's, you know, Jill Jones or whoever? Yeah, well, Jesse Johnson, I thought was fantastic. I did his album in his studio in his basement, and it came out terrific. And uh, I thought he was really good. He... Uh, unfortunately got undersold by the label. I don't think they did the right thing. He had a couple hits, but- um, A&M again, your, your old nemesis. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was A&M. I worked for A&M five different ways. I counted from promotion man to A&R to engineer to producer. I was even an artist on A&M back in my early days. I was in a band that got signed to A&M so I guess I can count that too. But yeah, I've worked for them a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now Jesse's kind of enigmatic uh, guy. Um, what can you share us about Jesse in terms of a talent and what he was like to work with? He was fantastic. He was great. He could play. He could play a lot of things that too. I mean he. And he had a great sense of uh, what he was doing, great sense of funk. He had his own funkiness. Um, I just think he was kind of uh, put off by the Prince experience. He wasn't real happy about it, everything that happened, which is unfortunate because he could have used that to keep going instead of putting up a big argument. I mean, he didn't want to join the the time reunion recently he wouldn't even join him which i thought was pointless why not i mean it's only history it's not like they care about what you feel now you know he was part of he was part of the time i love his guitar playing and um yeah, yeah the first, he, first record was great yeah there's a couple songs on his record i thought they really blew it by not releasing them. Um, he he did this great bass line on the synthesizer that uh, song called Let's Have Some Fun. It was one of the funkiest bass parts ever. But they didn't put it out and I and maybe he maybe he turned them off. I don't know. But I think he his personality got in the way of his success. Which is unfortunate. Then there was that weird thing where he had the Shockadelica album, but then the track was actually put out by Prince on a B-side. I don't know what happened there. I don't know either. I wasn't involved in that album. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon 
or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.